I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Andre Picard. He's a Canadian journalist and author specializing in healthcare issues. Let's talk about it. This is a very exciting moment for, for us. Uh, we are sitting down and having a chat with uh, none other than Andre Picard. And if you've been living under a rock um, or, um, or, you know, somewhere in the world where you don't typically stay up to date with health, uh, <laughs> which is like, I guess, someone If you're listening to this show, then that would be weird. Uh, Andre Picard is a health reporter and columnist for the Globe and Mail, where he has been a staff writer since 1987, which was before I was even born. I'm sorry, Andre. Uh, he's also the author of five best-selling books. Um, Andre is an eight-time nominee for the National Newspaper Awards, Canada's top journalism prize, and past winner of prestigious Mishner Award for Mator. Meritorious Public Service Journalism. He was named Canada's first public health hero by the Canadian Public Health Association as a champion of mental health by the Canadian Alliance on Mental Health, Il- Mental Illness and Mental Health and received the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for his dedication to improving health care. My first question for you, Andre, how in the fuck did we get you to agree to come on this podcast. <laughs> oh, well, I'm a big fan. I love listening to your show, so I'm happy to be here. Oh, why? Well, See, that's that quite the palmares there that, that, that I, you've got, Andre, and quite a distinguished <laughs> career you've had. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, it's, uh, I, 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 it, it kept going. I just had to stay to cut it off. <laughs> if you stick around long enough, they have pity for you and they give you trophies. <laughs> right, yes, yes. That must be okay, how Jerry won that Emmy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's that, right. Yeah, that, the that, Emmy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. show you about it. <laughs> I've got my Academy what? Award here. There yeah, we go. Right. The little man in the glass box. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, Andre, I mean, you know, this is, uh, you, you've been in the game for a very, very long time um, as a reporter. Um, ha- like, when did you, when did you start uh, reporting specifically on health? Was, was, has, has that been sort of a career-long path for you, or, or did that, did you kind of stumble into that at some point throughout your career? Yeah, so both. So I both stumbled into it and sort of stuck with it. So the arc of my career is really AIDS. So I started covering, I wrote my first story about AIDS, believe it or not, in 1981, when I was in a student newspaper, when AIDS was just a new thing. And on, on campuses, you know, campuses are always interested in political stuff. And it was more of a, a political issue than a health issue. And that's mm. always been my kind of bias is to look at the policy side rather than the medicine. So it started mm. with AIDS and I, I still cover AIDS to this day for literally 40 years later. Mm. Wow. I was, uh, I was, I was, uh, I was cruising through, uh, 
uh, your Wikipedia page, and and specifically, it it mentioned that when you started covering um, when you started covering AIDS, that you were looking you were looking at it, at it from a, a, a much more human side. Um, was that it? Was that something that you were encouraged to do? Was that something that just that that was was that out of the box at the time? Like it, again, like Jeremy said at the time, like when when when. I guess that would have been in the eighties um, when that whole thing was breaking. We were, I wasn't alive. Jeremy was like being born in the late eighties. What was, what was that like? And, and coming at it from the more human side, um, was that an out of the box thing? Was that, a, was that something that was, uh, that was out of the norm? I think it was a little bit out of the norm with the mainstream media where I ended up, but I came from, you know, this student press background where we, you know, AIDS at the time, there was no treatments, there was nothing. It was about discrimination against gay men. It was raiding bathhouses. So it was very, very political. I spent, uh, even when I started at the Globe, uh, I started, uh, they sent me out because when you're new, you do sort of the shit work. So, you know, I went out and covered protests and it was very angry gay men throwing bags of blood at the doors of corporations and stuff like that. And you get to meet those people and you see the anger, but they're also very articulate uh, men and they, you know, they knew how how to have political connections. So they really shaped healthcare forever. AIDS has forever shaped how we look at healthcare, how we look mm. at medicine, how we price drugs. It's had a profound impact uh, mm. in many many ways. Andre, I'm I'm curious about like when I think about um, what what it would be like to be a a health reporter. Um, I feel like it would be frustrating at times, especially approaching this topic from a political perspective, because it's so it takes fucking forever for things to change. And it takes a lot of noise for things to change, too. Um, I, but when when I when I think of you um, reporting on AIDS and, and being able to see that over the course of like the last you know 20 to 30 years and how that has changed, does it does does covering topics like that, like give you more hope? for the future of, you know, something like, for example, COVID-19 that we're facing right now? Does it does it give you hope to see that change happen over a long period of time? It does give me some hope, but it also, I think, I it reminds me that it takes a long time to do things. Science works very slowly. Politics operates even more slowly. So, you know, things that should have happened 20 years ago are happening now, but at least they're happening. So when you cover things like AIDS, you take comfort in really small victories. So I tell a story in my last book, I told a story in the introduction of that book about AIDS, uh, about going into a hospital at a time, uh, this would have been 1987, uh, meeting a man who was in his bed at St. Michael's Hospital, and they had put a, a sign on the door saying, you know, nuclear radiation, stay out, essentially, that this mm. guy was poisonous, and they hadn't changed his bed for three days. And I went in and I shook this guy's hand and said, introduce myself as I would normally do, and he just burst into tears. And he said, nobody has touched me for a week. Whoa. And to me, you know, and the next, you know, I wrote that story, how this guy was discriminated against because he was gay, etc. And the next day, we didn't have the internet back then, so we only had the paper. So the next morning, the paper came out. And within an hour of that uh, paper hitting the newsstand, that guy's bed was cleaned up, the policies were changed at the Whoa. hospital. And wow. so you take real, you know, mm -hmm. that's a victory. It's a right. very tiny thing, but it sort of helped move things along. So that that's how you, you treat it. But now, then you realize 99% of this time, your stories don't have any impact. And and, and that's and I was going to say, that's like a positive response to that, to hear that they, they ended up, you know, 
um, reacting and making a change so quickly after that story came out. I, I'm curious if you faced a lot of stigma, um, you know, in, in, in covering some of these more provocative or, or polarizing subjects, especially being a person who's, who's, you know, on the side of like advocating for, for a patient like that, where, you know, the people who are in the, the positions that are providing care even don't feel comfortable, you know, touching this person, for example. Have you faced a lot of stigma when you cover topics like that? I guess a little bit. I don't think of the stigma on myself. I, you know, I always know it's worse on the people I'm covering. So I think you're just kind of a, a conduit to this. So you get you, yeah, you get some uh, collateral damage. You know, in the days of the internet, you get lots of hate mail. There's, uh, you know, any I could name ten subjects where I can predict ahead of time there's going to be a thousand angry emails. Right? You just have to <laughs> yeah. say abortion or mm. abortion pill, or these days COVID nineteen, <laughs> and it just these are triggers. But they, yeah. or beyond just, sick boy <laughs> podcast, I mean that's, <laughs> yeah. that's just, yeah. just yeah. wait for it. It's I imagine you in. don't read the comment sections very often. <laughs> I don't read the comment sections, but yeah. I do. You know, if people send me mail, no matter how angry it is, I still read it. Uh, I right. think if they take the time to send it personally, I'll read it. I've mm. I've always uh, I've I've always been fascinated by by journalism and journalists in general. Um, I think because of I think because of the the you know when you when you read something like when you go and you read an article and you can and you can tell that the work has been done the research has been done and you're thinking about these things from the from the seat in which you sit thinking man, how did they get access to that information? How much time did it take to dig that up? How much, like all the work that goes into it. I, I, I find it very obvious the amount, the amount, the incredible amount of work that goes into uncovering a story and covering a story. Where does, you know, in your case in particular health, but journalists in general, where does your motivation come from to unearth the things that are worth knowing about? And in your particular case in the world of health. I think the motivations are, they're different ones. You know, I like the writing process. I think that's fun. Uh, I think I go back again to my student newspaper days. We used to be sort of very high and mighty about we want to be agents of social change. That was our motto mm. uh, in student newspapers. And I, I think a little bit of that stayed with me even as I got old and comfortable. I, I think you, you do ultimately hope that you have some influence. But as I said earlier, you kind of realize over the years that your influence isn't as much as you, you thought when you were 20. Uh, you, you realize, you know, you're more realistic about it, but you still hammer away. And the other part of it is, you know, after doing it for a long time, I'm incredibly privileged, right? I can access almost anyone in the world, literally. The globe has a big name. Uh, people want to be in the paper, et cetera. So I, I have this position of privilege and I, I try to use it responsibly. On a little more personal level, um, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Tay, and in, in I've, I've had those thoughts about about journalists and and you know I, I I look at that um I look at that that career and that work um and I, I don't I do I what we do is not is not anywhere no. <laughs> close to journalism you know what I mean like what we're, we're doing we're is so far so far <laughs> fucking removed from that we're the, the comment section but but yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yes that's right we're the cesspool of the internet and and um but but there are there are some similarities in what we do and 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 what what journalists like yourself do and um one of those one of those similar similarities is like we 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 are um we are given the 
we are given the permission to enter into somebody's life in a, in a pretty vulnerable way sometimes. And um, I know that for myself, in this process of doing this show for the last five years, you know, I've experienced some pretty um, profound moments in terms of sitting with someone and holding space with someone while they express some of their deepest, darkest moments of their life. And uh, I know that, like, you know, I, I have a few friends that took journalism, specifically at Ryerson, and, and through, like, talking with them, uh, there's this, the thing that sets us apart, I think, is that a journalist has this ability to, like, kind of put up a wall, for, for lack of a better term, whereas, whereas like, I, when, when we're doing this, like, I, I sometimes get a little too invested in the person that we're speaking with, right? And so I, I almost, like, lose myself. Like, for an example of this would be, like, one of our best friends that we ever that we've, we've ever had between the three of us. His name is Brandon, and we met him through the show. And, like, there were no, there were no barriers. There was no, there was no, like, professionalism that kind of got in the way. It, it immediately went from us having a one-hour conversation into us having, like, a deep-seated friendship. And when Brandon died, when his cancer eventually took his life, it was, like, you know, one of the fucking hardest moments of our lives. How... In that moment of, you know, just to use this as an example, that, that story you said about the gentleman who was laying in a hospital bed that hadn't been cleaned for three days, and you come in and you shake his hand, and he erupts into emotion. How hard is it as a journalist to, to, to not get pulled in and to not sort of maybe cross a line that you were taught isn't meant to be crossed? Yeah, I think, you know, we're human beings, so you get caught up in the emotion, but you try and you try and stick to the job, right? The job is, in that case, what was it? It's to tell uh, what this hospital is doing wrong to a person, whether you like them or not. So you try and put that aside and you try and focus on the story. But yeah, do you become friends with people? Do you have connections with them? Absolutely. Uh, I remember meeting someone... 1987. I wrote about her son uh, with schizophrenia, killing himself. Uh, she's 91 years old now. I still talk to her. She lives in a nursing home. Oh, oh wow. wow. You know, and it's just, just this connection. And I don't know why it happened. Why does it happen with some people and not others? But, and you know, and over the years, she's kept me, I, I read a lot about mental health and some of it was prodding from her saying, listen, you, you should do more about this. Uh, you know? Mm. So all these little connections you you build up over the years. But, yeah, sometimes you have to put up this wall. Uh, sometimes you write, you know, you have to be clear with people. I'm not here to promote you. Sometimes I'm going to write really negative things about you. I mean, maybe last week I wrote really good things, but this week you fucked up, and I'm going to mm-hmm. write that. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to you have to make that distinction. Some And some people don't like that. They don't like that, uh, oh, I thought you were my friend. You wrote a good thing about me last week. Right, right. Has it has it has that ever been a real challenge for you personally? You know, like have you ever have you ever have you ever kind of battled with that that necessity to put up walls sometimes? A little bit. I think what I battle more with is uh, I worry about the impact of my stories on people, especially because mm. you know, like you, I write about very intimate things. So mm. I can tell you, I, as a journalist, I always like to tell stories with anecdotes. So a good anecdote of this is. Uh, one that I, a story I really struggled with is uh, I get really interesting email. Most interesting email I ever got, the first line was, I killed my son. So that got oh. my attention. 
So it was an email from a mum who was in the hospital, gave birth, uh, was sleeping with her newborn son, rolled over, suffocated him, killed her son. And she contacted me because she wanted to the policies of the hospital to change. She had been given this sleeping pill. She wanted, you know, she wasn't watched for hours, so she killed her son. And I, that was a deeply moving story. But, you know, what I could have done is I could have just, bang, called her up and written that story. But I really worried about, you know, what's going to happen to her? I I told her, people are going to write you and say, you're a murderer. It's going to be ugly. I really don't know if I should write this. And I went through this process with her for a long time. I didn't write that story for months. Uh, I ended up talking to her doctor. I spoke to her psychiatrist with her permission. You know, I want to say, like, if I write this story, is she going to kill herself is what I asked, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah. So you, sometimes you get invested that way. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I wrote that story and it had, it was on the front page of the Globe and it had the most beautiful picture because she lived in this uh, vineyard in B.C., and again, that story, uh, all hospitals in BC immediately changed their policy about wow. co-sleeping with mums and eventually became a national policy. So she was so happy with the, you know, even though she had this inconsolable loss, she was happy mm. that some good came out of it. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I struggle with more than is that my friend or not. Uh, yeah, you know, right. Journalists generally don't have friends. have have you ever had a a moment where like i imagine that that's a very difficult decision to make and and like uh, like in that moment when you're describing speaking with her doctor and her therapist and 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 really trying to understand if it's the best move or not to actually write that story uh, ultimately you make the decision to do it and it and it and it works out but has there been a moment where you've been sort of in a similar situation where you're assessing whether or not you know what? Like it's it's almost impossible to to tell preemptively what the outcome of a story will be and how people will will respond. And even though you do the the most amount of due diligence, the best job that you can beforehand, sometimes you don't always have the intended the the intended consequences don't don't um, present themselves beforehand. So have you have you ever had that experience where you've made a decision and you felt like it was the wrong call afterwards? Uh, probably, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, but I, I can't think of one off the top mm. of my head. But I, you know, I know that I've written stories where where people have, you know, people with mental illness, and they do end up killing themselves, mm-hmm. and you you don't feel good about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I struggled with one. There was a, a young uh, fellow who wanted uh, maid who wanted medically medical assistance in dying, and he was denied mm-hmm. it. And he wrote me and he said, "I'm going to kill myself tomorrow morning, and this is how mm-hmm. I'm going to do it." And the struggle there is, do you write about that? Do you not write about it? Do you call the police? What, what do you do about that? So it's those things. And again, I have to say that I'm, I've been doing this a long time. I have a long leash, so I have a lot of privilege to do this. I, the people I feel sorry are the young journalists who say, you know, say that mum wrote some young journalist and the writer would say, do it, do it now. I don't mm-hmm. care about the consequence. Like, yeah, do it. Right. Right? Right. I, I have the privilege of being able to think, think these three things it's, through. It's interesting too because when I when I ask that question, I, I kind of at the same time think about um, our first experience in talking to somebody living with mental illness. Um, this young woman who had bipolar two disorder, and going into that conversation, the three of us were so worried about just having a chat with her. Like, were we going to say something that would trigger her to like freak have out or episode, lose her mind or have yeah, an episode? Yeah. And, and uh, it, the the funny thing is that like when we got when we got through that conversation and looked back on it, 
you know, like we, the, the fear that we had about having that conversation was, was only fear that we had within ourselves. It wasn't, you know, wasn't the reality of the situation. Um, we just had a, a normal conversation as you would with any person. And once we were able to like, let go of our own fears or concerns around that topic, we were able to like, actually just sit there and be with that person. And as Jeremy's used to reference a couple of times, hold space for them and and be present in that conversation. So like I, I understand that there are moments where you do have to be really careful about how you interact with people, especially people with um, serious mental uh, illnesses. But at the same time, like, you know, I think more often than not, we're more afraid than we have to be going into those situations. I think it's an important learn- lesson for, for journalists to learn is to not to pussyfoot around people, not to pity them. People hate that. Just... They appreciate when you ask, uh, treat them like human beings, treat them like everyone else. And I learned that lesson really early on. There's a a journalist, June Colwood, who's really a legend of Canadian journalism. And when I started at the Globe, I was lucky I sat beside her desk and her at her desk in Casey House, the AIDS house uh, hospice is named after her son, Casey. And her son died. He died in a car crash. And I remember one day I had to do uh, a pickup. That's a term we use for... Uh, before we could get photos by the internet, when someone died, you had to go visit their family and knock on the door and say, hey, do I have a picture of your son who just got murdered? Wow. So that's one of the things mm-hmm. journalists dreaded. So the young people got to do it. And I had to go do this pickup and interview the father of a son who had just uh, drowned in a, a public swimming pool. And I was mem- mm-hmm. you know, I was saying to her, to June, oh, I really dread this. And she told me the story of her son. Her son died in a car crash and the journalist came to her house and she said it was the best thing that ever happened to her because oh. all her friends were saying, oh, Joan, June, feel so sorry for us, feel so sorry for her. And she said, I just want to talk about my son. Mm-hmm. And this journalist came and said, what was his name, Casey? How old was he? What did he do? What did, you know, what, what were his strengths? Uh, what, what did he want to do in life? And she just, she said that moment was so important for her grieving process. Mm. So I realized, you know, don't pity people. Just meet them. If they don't want to talk, they'll tell you they don't want to talk. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and it's a lot about intent too. Like if you actually are genuinely coming from a place of compassion, then, then, you know, if you make mistakes, I feel like I'm just reciting a part from a keynote talk that we do, but, but if you, it's important, like if you, you literally it, are, I was like, it, I was like, I, I know the script, <laughs> but, it, but if you, if you genuinely come from a place of compassion, then like, then, you know, if you fuck up and say the wrong thing, then, you know, the person's going to be able to forgive you, but you know, if you're going there with malicious intent, then you know, fuck you for doing that. Yeah. And and if if you just That's listen to that, you, and, if you like that, and you want us to speak at your bar mitzvah, <laughs> uh, go to sickboypodcast.com/slash/contact, oh and uh, you can book us for your next event. Um, uh, I could, go ahead, Dan. Andre. I, I I you mentioned when you mentioned the uh, when you mentioned the 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 story that you covered in in '87 with the the boy who's schizophrenic. Um, it, it it kind of it made me. The, th- the thought that popped into my head is that, you know, you've 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 been you've been um, you've been covering health for so long. Uh, something like mental health that, to us, since we started this show, we we started the show in 2015, and we have felt like, really in 2015, when we started, you know, as a as a as a collective, really paying attention to, the world of health that that the issues surrounding mental health and mental illness were really starting to to pick up more attention and that things were starting to change covering covering health for so long 
what has what has been the trajectory of mental health how it's viewed socially how it's um viewed from um from from a policy perspective um and like what has been what has that arc been like through your career because mm. we know like i said we've noticed an arc just in the just in the years that we've been doing this show and you've been at it a lot longer than us what is what what are your what's your perspective there yeah so it's changed quite dramatically you know the stigma is not there as much as it there used to be a lot of stigma we just didn't write about suicide for example we didn't write the word people died suddenly and things like that there's all kinds of euphemisms Mm. so i think mostly the language has changed a lot uh things like the internet have really forced us to change because people you know you realize in retrospect people wanted to tell their stories they weren't ashamed of having mental illness we assumed they were ashamed and that created shame, right? right. So it's a self-perpetuating mm-hmm. problem. So it's it's really changed dramatically. Uh, the the problem I have now is I, I think we've done a lot to uh, get rid of stigma. But my uh, pet peeve now is I say, when you say to people, uh, there's no stigma anymore, you can tell your story freely. To me, there's a, a an implication there that if you do it, we're going to help you. So I think we're not following through on the social contract. The social Mm. contract should be, if we're going to talk about this, we're going to help you. And we're not helping people. So we're not Mm. providing any more care than we did when people hid in their basement and didn't talk about it. So to me, Mm. there hasn't been progress in the right way. There's been progress, but it should be so much more. Mm. And do you feel like on the journalism side, because the sentiment that I was kind of getting from you earlier in terms of, um, I can't remember what Brian mentioned something about, um, about, you know, if you are hopeful and I almost kind of, I, I, and I, and I was imagining in my head that, that you, you must have to be because you're oftentimes going to be writing about things or uncovering things that don't have the attention that they deserve. Therefore there has to be hope for them to change or want to change or for somebody to listen and somebody to hear that and go, Hey, this needs to be heard. Um, do, do, does it feel does it feel like we're in that moment now with mental health where where we're sort of like on the edge and and there is this there is this huge hope for things to uh like have an actionable change to them you know we just need people like you writing about writing about issues making it known to the people uh to society at large to you know policymakers um to recognize that that Yes, people are sharing their stories, but there has to be there has to be an action. There has to be an action behind all of these stories that are coming out. All of the um, all of the recognition, the kind of like the social recognition of of mental health issues, um, but but maybe not so much on the on the actionable side of things. Yeah, so I think I'm as journalists go. I'm a fairly hopeful person. I think I'd, I'm less hopeful in the mental health field. For a couple of reasons. One is I think we're doing all this talking and that's great. But I think we pay too much attention to the low-hanging fruit. So, so people who are not too sick. And I think we don't pay near enough attention to people with severe mental illness. The people who live in our streets. You know, the 20,000 people, uh, Canadians who sleep on the street every night. 90-some percent of them have severe mental illness. We're not uh, giving proportionate attention to that. So that bothers Mm -hmm. me. The other thing that bothers me is that it's almost become, now I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but it's almost become trendy to talk about mental illness and our problems. 
And it bothers me that we've come to the point where we pathologize normal emotions. You know, people mm, are, right. you can't be sad anymore. You're depressed. You can't be, oh, you know, tired and pissed off. You have, suffer from anxiety. And I don't think it helps anyone to, to give these emotions, to call them a condition. When mm-hmm. people have a condition, it's a serious thing. It's not, oh, I'm going to cry tonight because I broke up with my boyfriend. That's not depression. That's, I broke up with my boyfriend. And mm-hmm. I think we, we uh, in a bid to, you know, be sympathetic, we're afraid to say that to, to young people, especially, that you're not mm-hmm. sick, you're just it's a normal thing. I feel like that kind of comes from, you know, I, like I was so naive growing up. I, I used to think probably until the time I was like at least 12 that, you know, everybody else had the same life that I did growing up. It was just like a different like template put on top of it. Like I, I assume that people felt the way that I did, that like people experienced the world largely like I did. But, um, you know, it wasn't really until starting to have conversations on this podcast, like go into like some of like the the most challenging moments of people's lives that I started to realize like whoa like we're we're profoundly different as people like there's like we we are, we have at large collectively different experiences of this world and you know I would have been the type of person had it not been for this to just think like oh I'm feeling sad and I've felt sad for a couple of weeks this is depression because that's my only reference to to understanding that. So, and I think in a, in in like thinking that I'm doing a good job by empathizing with other people, I think, "Oh, I know how you feel because I felt sad. So, this is a good thing that I'm doing in relating to you." But now I'm realizing like, "Oh, fuck, there are people who have had drastically different experiences in life, Ooh. and just because you felt a certain way for a certain amount of time doesn't mean that that's what that person is feeling." And so, instead of comparing ourselves to one another, we just need to to be able to try our best to understand and listen to what that person is experiencing, but not try to like, like like you're saying, like it's almost, it's almost trendy to like be like, Oh, I have that too. Especially. And I mean, not to bash Bell Let's Talk, but like Bell Let's Talk Day brings people out on social media all the time, just like talking about the challenges that they've had. And, you know, I don't want to get hate mail for this, but frankly, like there's sometimes when people share moments like that, that it's like, Yes, that's that's challenging for you, and challenges are relative. But fuck, you're missing the point that this person here is suffering an incredible at, at incredible um, amounts that that you you can't even understand or can't comprehend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see how that. I can see how you could imagine, Andre, that that would that that might be controversial. But I think it's a very logical. I think it's a very logical and rational um, opinion that that like yeah it 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 i i didn't really have that thought until you just said it i think it i think it makes a lot of sense like things can become trendy and then and then you can and then feeling included because because you've you know you're you're maybe a, a part of a group that is also that is also you know saying you know i feel this way i feel that way and and um and but i particularly i particularly um resonate with what you said about uh people who are experiencing homelessness, the people that are people that are like really experiencing the sharp end of, of, of mental health issues. We've um, talked with uh, a couple of times in the show with Dr. Nahid Dasani uh, about uh, his work that he does in Toronto, helping um, giving palliative care to, uh, to people who are living on the streets and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, yeah, I think 
you're 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 pointing out something really um, really important there that it that that maybe it is all a little bit too much lip service until uh, until people that are suffering in like really really dramatic ways uh, start to get m- more of the help that they that they need um, as somebody who help. Uh, and and maybe maybe this isn't maybe this isn't in your in your lane um as a journalist because i'm not sure whether i'm not sure how much how much of your opinion do you do you insert into uh into the stories that you cover are you collecting information and presenting it or are you are you are you inserting your your opinion uh into into your work and if you are what is your opinion there? How does how do things? Uh, what are the sort of like policy things that could change or might change um, in that realm to to make these things a little bit more action oriented? Yeah. So over the years, I've gone from writing, you know, being a news reporter, a feature writer, to now I'm mostly an opinion writer. So it is all my opinion, but I try and you know base it on on uh, policy and sensible arguments, etc. Uh, so I so mostly it's opinion. So on an issue like uh, homelessness, I think the issue it becomes it's about choices, right? We have money that we spend, our collective money, which are taxes, and we make choices. Uh, we make choices based on our values. And I think that our spending doesn't reflect our values. I don't think Canadians want people living on the street. Uh, I think it's absurd, uh, perverse even, to be building shelters instead of giving people permanent homes. I'm a big, you know, I'm a big proponent of things like housing first. So the people living, what's the solution for homelessness? Homelessness, it's housing. It sounds trite, but that's what it comes down to. And you, Mm. once you make that a policy, as some countries have done, then they don't have homelessness. You can make all kinds of excuses, but that ultimately you have to have a set goal and then work to achieve it. And that's, that's why I write a lot from the policy perspective is I think a lot of our health problems can be solved with with better policy. Mm-hmm. How often do you find yourself looking to like looking abroad or looking to other countries to see what they're doing that works well and, 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 and then looking back here in contrast and going, wow, what the fuck? Why are we doing that? That seems so obvious or it's working. Why, why can't we adopt this practice here too? Yeah, I look a lot. I read a lot about stuff around the world, but also, you know, we don't have to look beyond our borders. We have in Canada, we have the solution to every single problem we've ever had in the health system. We've resolved it with a pilot project. We are the land of pilot projects in Canada. We've solved everything and we just don't scale up our successes. So to me, that's Mm. the, the biggest frustration I've had is I know that everything I write about has been resolved and we know how to fix it. We could fix it tomorrow and we just don't do it. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. 
One of the things that you said earlier that uh, really stuck out to me was how, you know, health and the issues around health are, are, are so easily politicized. Um, and that is, like, super evident right now in the mm-hmm. time that we are currently living through. Um, you know, with COVID uh, being this, this new way of life uh, within the last seven or eight months, how, how has this uh, tiny, minuscule little virus that we can't even see with our, our naked eye floating through the earth or floating through the air, like, how does that little thing completely altered your your landscape in terms of work and and what it is you're doing is this is like is this moment unlike anything you've ever experienced unprecedented. in your career <laughs> is yeah, it unprecedented yeah. is it unprecedented and is this going to be the new normal <laughs> uh, it isn't it isn't unprecedented at all for me so it's just a different uh, it's a little more intense it's getting more attention but that's what i've been writing about for 40 years is epidemics whether it's aids sars mers hepatitis C, homelessness, uh, mental mm-hmm. illness. That, that's what I write about. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone said uh, early on when I was, because I've been writing about intensely about coronavirus for a few months, someone said early on, you've been waiting your whole, you've been training your whole career to write about this. And it's right. true, not, not by uh, any planned ma- manner, but this is essentially everything I've been writing about for 30 years is now sort of coming to a head. And it's not because coronavirus is, uh, any different. It's just given us an opportunity to, I think, shine a light on all our failures. It's just kind of shone these spotlights on things uh, where the failures already existed and they've simply, ex- this virus has simply exacerbated them to the point where we can't not pay attention. Right. Can you can you explain what risk communication is? Yeah, so risk communication is how do you communicate with people uh, to explain to them what is their risk personal, what's their risk uh, on a societal level. So it's about uh, giving people information without just scaring the shit out of them. So giving them actionable information, I think, is what our public health officials don't do enough of. Say, listen, here's because we get caught up in statistics. We love the numbers, and I, I'm a data geek. I love the numbers. But if I tell you, well, coronavirus has a death rate of 1.3% and the uh, you know, the uh, infection rate, positivity rate today in Toronto is 3.1%. What do you do with that information? It's totally useless. Mm. What do you have to tell people <clears throat> is Thanksgiving is coming up. This is not a good time to go home because there's too much virus circulating. So uh, put a little water in your wine, stay at, uh, stay in your university dorm. And you can, if you do that, you'll probably be able to go see your parents at Christmas. Mm. You have to, risk communication is that, is putting things... Uh, in terms that people can understand and they can act on. Why? Why do you think like the? <clears throat> why do you think the government and and their their mode of 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 applying risk communication differs from like reporters' mode of applying risk communication? Like, why why aren't they? Is there is there? Do you do you feel like they could be doing it better in in terms of like the government and the way that they're going about it? Yeah, well, depending on what government we're talking about, but say we take Ontario, they could definitely be doing it better because right. uh, what's lacking in their messaging is what what's their goal. So what exactly, mm-hmm. why are we locking down restaurants and bars? Uh, I think to most people it seems obvious, but they're not doing a good job of articulating that. I think the government too often is trying to uh, serve too many masters. 
you know, we don't want the business community to be unhappy. We don't want the bowling alleys or the bars to be unhappy, etc. And they're trying to please everyone. And that's journalists, uh, thankfully, don't have that uh, that burden. We don't have to please everyone. Don't have to please anyone. So it's a little mm. easier to to say stuff more more bluntly. But I mm. think something like, you know, with coronavirus, that's the issue for politicians: is uh, do you have the the guts or the common sense to, I think, get out of the way and let the public health people tell you what to do. Mm. So if, if I can I often contrast Ontario with British Columbia. British Columbia, the Premier of British Columbia essentially says nothing about coronavirus. He says, whatever Bonnie Henry says, I'm going to mm. do it. That's, right. how, that's what they should do in Ontario. In Ontario, <clears throat> the Premier asks for advice. He doesn't like it. So then he gives his own opinion, which is based on what? Well, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like that's kind of what's happening here in Nova Scotia. You know, like I feel like I feel like you know Steve McNeil says his piece, and then he goes, "Okay, everyone, now listen to Daddy Strang. Like Daddy Strang will now tell us all what to do." <laughs> and then and then it's Daddy's turn to like step up to the mic, and he goes, "Thank you, thank you, son." And then he, you know, he like lays down the law, and everyone just goes, "All right, I guess we listen to Daddy Strang." And and he's, <laughs> he's got, got the like, goods. He seems like it seems like he's doing. That's that's the process, and it seems like it's. I mean, obviously, it it's been working for us. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess it's it's funny how like depending on where you are, it's it's completely different. And then and then like looking across across our border into the United States, it's a completely fucking different story. Um, you know, we live in this, we live in this era now of fake news and trust the trust in media, um, down, down there has, has, is non-existent. Um, it, it, like, is that, what's the, what's the status of that here in Canada? Like, do you, have you noticed, you know, since, since fake news has become a part of our everyday vernacular over the last three years, four years, has that have has that have you noticed a difference in in the work that you're doing or noticed a difference in the landscape of like of reporting and, and media and, and yeah trust in media yeah i think there's no question that there's less trust in institutions and the, including the media so institutions mm. broadly uh, less trust in government less trust in science less trust in media and i think that's a very bad thing you know, I think having some skepticism in life is essential. It's really good for your health and uh, especially it's a tool of journalists to be skeptical. But I think it's totally gone overboard into this just nonsensical hatred of all things sensible. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I never I personally never use the term fake news because I think it's a Trumpism. I think yeah. it was designed to make people distrust uh, everything so that he could allow himself to perpetuate just total and absolute nonsense. And I think mm-hmm. it's worked. And I think the media, I think we, to our discredit, we've really bought into it by using his terminology, by mm-hmm. allowing him to set the rules. You know, we should trust science for the most part. We should trust our governments. And if we don't trust them, we should vote them out. We shouldn't go around right. saying, oh, you know, there's the deep state, etc. That's all bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. And yeah, we, right. we shouldn't allow ourselves to buy into it. Uh, the vast majority of the media does a pretty good job. It doesn't mean it's great, but mm-hmm. read it, uh, read a broad variety of things. I think that's so essential. And that's Trump is, per, mm-hmm. is saying do the opposite. Just listen to Fox News. Just mm. drink my Kool-Aid and everything else is bullshit. And I, mm. that's really, really dangerous. That's what... Uh, 
despots do. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you in that in that in the, on that same kind of line? Like, have you in the age of in the age of in the age of social media, where so many news articles are coming through, are coming, you know, at the bottom of at the at the, in the clickbait section of the bottom of the site that you're on, or or coming through people's news feeds that are generally shared around and creating creating echo chambers. Um, what what has the what has the have you do you have a do you have a perspective on on how social media has changed journalism and how things circulate and how th- and how people's opinions are are shaped because of because of the way that social media tends uh tends to basically like circulate like you said people should have a a, a broad variety of information that they're digesting and social media just because of the way that the because of the math of the of the software works doesn't tend to give that to people and it becomes harder and harder for people to get. They tend to get more and more of the same stuff all the time and reiterating, uh, reiterating a, you know, an already formed opinion, um, and strengthening that over and over again, instead of, instead of serving up something that might challenge uh, the way that they think. Do you see, do you see that in, 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 in journalism, like working at a, at a big news, um, at a national newspaper? Is that something that's on a far the leftist, radar? leftist, uh, <laughs> Antifa run news, yeah. news station? Have you been referred to as an Antifa soldier? <laughs> <laughs> that was a question Taylor was asking. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of get called everything, left wing, right wing, whatever, yeah. but uh, that goes with the Whatever territory. fits for the people that are saying it. Yeah, right. exactly. But to, you know, as someone who's started well before social media came along, it has had a dramatic change, right? And I think it's had it's done a lot of good. So I love Twitter. I live on Twitter. So I think it's uh, the tools in themselves are not bad. It's how you use mm. them that matters. I think what should disturb people is uh, how these sites are run, you know, how the decisions are made by, by bots, et cetera, and how, you know, how it prioritizes what you read. I think that's the most dangerous part of it. I think that the the internet should have been an opportunity for us to read so much more variety and have so much more to think about. Uh, And I I think it's an opportunity that's been wasted and undermined by, you know, the way Facebook does its metrics and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's it's tragic and I I, I don't know how we're going to get around it, but I think it's essential for democracy that that we fix this. Mm -hmm. You know, regardless of your politics, I think this should disturb you profoundly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, you know, it's a bot deciding what's at the top of the newsfeed every five seconds. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I, and, I don't see how that's good for anyone. Yeah, yeah. and close and making it and making it just too closely related to the things that you've already read. Mm-hmm. So you just so 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 you end up so you end up getting you know it would be it like I I kind of think about it in the way that if 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 the if the I hate to use the word algorithm because I know it's just it's just totally like who knows what the fuck the algorithm is, but I'll I'll say the math of the software. I like that. I, I like that. That's, that <laughs> you, feels, you said math that, of the software earlier, and I was like, oh, that's a great way. It of feels saying much algor- easier algorithm. to understand, whereas algorithm feels like so abstract. Um, <laughs> the, you know, if it if it if it tended to to pick up something and feed you something that was like that was like the opposing view. Like if you read one thing, you kind of get the, you kind of get the op- the opposition argument of the other. Like, it's like, you're almost in a, a like a live news debate and you're being sur- like, I wonder if that would be something that would, that would, that would benefit uh, our society instead of just being, you know, fed the same fed the, the, you know, the article that, the article that jerks off the article that you just read that you just <laughs> Dude, read that right? would only be advantageous for 
for uh, Republicans because you know everybody knows <laughs> Democrats are right, Republicans <laughs> are wrong. Yeah, everybody so, knows. So duh. Uh, fuck's sake. I can't. Uh, let's. Uh, I, want, I, want want to, I want to see what that Antifa. Antifa. Yeah, I, 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 I want to switch meeting after. I want to and ask Andre. I'm really curious about how a a lifetime of reporting on health has impacted the way that you have conversations with people in your personal life about um, health or illness. Has it had an effect? Uh, Probably. I'm not sure exactly what. I know my family will say I can ruin any dinner party with the conversation (laughs) that I bring up. But uh, aside from that, you know, once I was at a fondue party and I started telling this story about these, oh, I wrote a story once about fondue deaths how people knock over the oil and go up in flames. And I was kind of put a, I kind of bummed out that fondue party, so I wasn't invited back anymore. But I guess, you know, I guess I talk about, people like to share their health stuff stories with me. And, you know, in my work, I I think that's a really, it's a privilege to hear this stuff, you know, to hear people. And Mm. people, I, after 40 years of doing this, I'm still to this day shocked by how much information people will share. You know, and uh, we don't, and people think we put everything in our stories. We don't. I think a really important thing is to be, you know, put relevant things in your stories and not everything, wholeness, mm-hmm. wholeness. Uh, but, you know, people just share in an incredible way. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, makes them feel good or something. But I'm like, ooh, I have to be responsible about that. Mm-hmm. What, what about, what about use of, what, like, what are your thoughts on the, the use of humor when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, to putting out stories that, that oftentimes deal with, you know, pretty like heavy subject matter. Do you, is humor, uh, is humor uh, naturally a part of your, um, your, your, your writing, a part of your work? I think it's really important. I don't think it comes into my writing too much. I work for the old gray lady, the globe, so it doesn't uh, come in as much, but I think it's really, you know, we've written about, uh, uh, mental health comedy troops, things like that. I think it is important for people. I think if you've ever spent time in a newsroom, you would know that uh, there's very dark humor. Hmm. You know, I spent uh, several months covering the the genocide in Rwanda, for example, many years ago, and the most dark humor at all is in war zones, right? So it's it's a protective mechanism. So we use it. Uh, Lots of people I know dying of AIDS, very funny people, very Mm -hmm. self-deprecating. Same with cancer people. Uh, So it's an important part of people's uh, way of dealing with illness. But I I don't think it gets into my writing as much, probably not as much as I'd like. Mm. Uh, We Just to kind of throw back to something we were talking about there earlier, uh, you were saying you love Twitter. You're on Twitter. Uh, uh, We've been following you on Twitter now for, for quite a while. Um, and folks, if you're listening right now, definitely go follow Andre Picard on Twitter because you're you're missing out if you aren't. Um, but uh, just recently, like uh, like a month, a month and a half ago, you were you had a you you had a your own hashtag was trending on Twitter. What was that? What was that all about? Do you remember what that was? Uh, I don't off the top of my head, but uh, it, I've had that happen a couple of times. But I don't know sometimes couple, people okay. pick up on stuff. Yeah, it was like something like I don't know Andre Picard for for King or something like that, or, or Andre <laughs> Picard be my dad or something. Some, yeah, something I don't know cute. about that uh, one. Uh, you know, <laughs> the downside of having lots of followers is I don't interact as much as I used to at the beginning because I get so much right. junk yeah, right. into my uh, inbox that I don't read my notifications as much as I should. So I mm. might have missed out on some of this stuff. People making fun of me, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. No, but you know, it, it, I, I actually how I came across it was. Uh, 
was it was Nahid. Nahid Dasani actually was like, oh yeah, sweet. Picard's like trending. And it was you you had said you had made some sort of statement and um at least the at least the the mathematical um feedback that I was getting from the, the computing <laughs> software on Twitter <laughs> that day. Uh it was it it was a lot of people like basically singing your praises. But I, I, fuck, I wish I remembered. I should have brought it up uh, to have it, like, in the background there, but I forget what it was. Anyway, congratulations. That's, uh, <laughs> that's very, very exciting. Uh, Andre, this has been, this has been a real, a real uh, privilege and a real uh, treat to be able to sit down and have a conversation with you. You've been, you've been one, of our, uh, one of our dream guests for quite a while. And so um, it's, yeah, just been a true honor. So thank you for taking the time out of your day today to sit down with a couple of nincompoops and, and tell us all about uh, your, your long and, and obviously uh, successful career in the world of health journalism, because it means a lot. Well, it was fun. Thanks. Uh, thanks for taking time to talk to me. And, uh, uh, you know, I've been away from Twitter for 30 minutes, so people think I'm dead now. I better get back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go yeah. send them a lifeline. <laughs> Cool. Thanks a lot, Andre. Okay, thanks. Ta-da! That was our recording with a guest that we have been so horny to talk to mm-hmm. for a long time. Uh, people couldn't see this, but man... Mr. Picard, rocking the fucking sickest beard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a pretty impressive. So beard. nice, such a nice beard. I've been growing mine out, and uh, and I'm just aching to make it look just like Daddy Picard's. Yeah, yeah I've been I'll growing never, mine too. I'll never have that beard when I when I when I want to know what my long beard will look like. I Google, I Google um, uh, Johnny Depp uh, long pubes. Let's it go. Hmm. Is that what you Google? Yeah, Johnny Depp lets it go, or Orlando Bloom lets. No, Brian. Brian's more of an Orlando Bloom. Johnny Depp lets uh, it go, and then and so and then I, and then I let's see burn what, Amber. Text allegedly sent by Johnny Depp about X. Hmm. Well, that's what you. That's what you Google, hey? Yeah, and then I take my inspiration from that wow. for my beard. You can't talk about Johnny Depp. He's 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 been canceled. Um, Doesn't change the fact that we've I don't. The same I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't know what the. Uh... Cool. Well, this was a great uh, outro. Uh, thank you so much, Andre Andre Picard. Uh, <laughs> you're the coolest. We don't even know your name, Andre. Cool. Thanks, Andre Picard. Park it. This is really great. Uh, gl- glad you were trending on Twitter. Ash. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, folks. Sorry. That's it for this week, and uh, we will be back next week. Actually, we're back every Monday and Friday for your sick boy fix. But uh, for some of you, that's not enough. And if it's not enough, then um, while you're going to find Andre Picard on Twitter, uh, go find us on Twitter, and then send a tweet, make a little tweet, and tag us and Andre in it, and say, "Just listen to your episode. Loved it. Tee hee hee hee." And mm-hmm. uh, and just exactly that, and we'll see yeah. how many people on Twitter will say that exact same thing. T he 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 is spelled T E H E H E H E. Yeah, um, and, and uh, or go over to Instagram and you can follow us there because you can do that too. You can do that. I mean, you could do that on all the social medias. Thank you so much for that. And what you could also do on our social medias as well, if you have any questions or comments that you'd like us to read on the show, you can go to sickboypodcast.com dot com slash contact and send us there, or send them via social. Um, 
if you want to be on the show, if you want to apply to be a guest on the show, to be one of the amazing conversations that we have uh, each and every Monday episode that we drop, sickboypodcast.com slash contact. Um, we also have an email there. If you've got any cool stories, you know, we, we, have, we have some really amazing guests that will um, either – you know, past guests that will write us stories and update them or just fans that have their own story. Uh, maybe they're not going to be on the show, but they just want to tell us an update. Maybe how somebody who's been on the show has inspired them to talk about their story, um, to open up conversation with their friends. Um, if you have any story like that, you can send it to letters at sickboypodcast.com and we might just uh, fancy it a lot and read it on the show. And a huge shout out to the incredible people who make this podcast happen. Um, thank you to Lauren Sankey, who sharpens the pencils in the office. Thank you to Taylor McGilvery, who staples sheets of paper together. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jeremy Saunders, who just says good morning to everybody as they arrive into the office. Mm-hmm. Thank you to Brian Stever, that is me, for being the smile guy. I, and, and not for people inside the office. I smile at people outside of the office through the window. Thank you to Jeff Lonis, who fills the fridge. Thank you to Donovan, the Meerkat Morgan, who does the incredible mouthwash, um, puts together that basket ceremony. with the mouthwash. The ceremony. In the, the mouthwash yeah. ceremony. Yeah, the, the gargle, the gargle mm-hmm. ceremony. Mm. Each and every morning. Yeah. The swish, and, uh, gargle, spit. And a uh, shout out to gargle, whoever spit. does, you know, <gasps> whatever theme song this is today, whenever this episode's coming out. It could be Rich O'Coin, could be Take Part, but it's really? probably. It's Take Part. Take part. Yeah. Because this is Monday. That's right. It that's is it. Monday. So. <laughs> All right. That's it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. We are we are reporters. We are journalists because Andre <laughs> Picard said so. And this is Sick Boy. He said it when the mic was were off, but mm-hmm. he did say it for he the did. record. He did mm-hmm. say it. He this did. is Sick Boy. This is Sick Boy. We are journalists. journalists. This Warren is wrote it with a pencil. We are, we, we are ready for prime time, motherfucker. We are <laughs> ready for prime time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.